We are in Romans 16. One last week in Romans. Next week, unless God does something different in the book of Acts, as we continue our study through the life of Paul. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We dipped out of Acts, I think it was a year ago, I didn't check, but it feels like a year or so, that we dipped out of Acts, we left Paul in Corinth. When we left him, he had just begun the return leg of his third missions journey. He's headed back to Jerusalem to carry the, the offerings that he had taken from the various churches that he'd ministered at and alongside, um, bringing back to Jerusalem to help minister to the poor there. But he pauses in Corinth for reasons that we'll talk about next week. We'll, we'll take a step back and remind ourselves what's happened up to this point. But it's from Corinth that Paul writes his letter to the Romans, so that's where we've been for the last year or so. That's where we dipped out. We'll pick up in Acts next week unless God throws up a detour sign. He does that sometime. But if you want to read ahead, Acts 20, rewind to the beginning, and we'll take it probably to verse 16 or so. After we finish Acts, Acts will take us to, to Paul on his way to Rome. We talked a couple weeks ago. Paul was thinking that he was headed to Rome. He ends up going there a different route, a different way, um, to very different ministry than he anticipated. We'll, we'll then go through the prison epistles that he writes under house arrest in Rome. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We've, we've, we've hit Philemon a couple different times. We might revisit it because I love Philemon so much. You know that. Um, and then after that, Paul is released. And while he is free and on his fourth missions trip, he writes 1 Timothy, he writes Titus, the first two of the pastoral epistles. He's imprisoned again. He writes the third one. So that'll be what we're doing for the next couple of years. But this morning, one more chapter to go in Romans. And it's really less, of a, less than a whole chapter because a couple, three weeks ago, if you'll remember, we reached forward and we pulled verses 17 to 20 back into what we were talking about. Paul was in the middle of talking about unity, and we said, what do we do when there's disunity? And we reached into his letter to Titus, but we also reached forward to verses 17 to 20 of chapter 16. So what remains, what we haven't talked about in Romans 16, if you just glance forward through the first half or so, it's mostly greetings. It's mostly say hi to so-and-so. It's mostly give so-and-so a hug for me. And if you, if you look a little more closely, verse 3 to 16, every verse starts with the word greet. Go down to verse 21, 21 and following, they all end with greet. And, well, verses 1 and 2, they might as well start with greet. It's a different verb, but it's the same idea. So there's a pretty clear theme in what we're going to be talking about this morning, what Paul is talking about here as he ends his letter. And that might tempt us, seeing that it's greeting, 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 greeting. It might tempt us to say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, name, 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 name. Why don't we just go to Acts 20, Patrick? And why don't we, you know, read a part of Scripture where something actually happens rather than one of these long lists of names? But we know better, right? Paul tells Timothy in the last letter that he writes, and last words are important, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says all of Scripture, including the long lists of names, all of Scripture is God-breathed. New King James says given by inspiration of God, because New King James is stuffy that way. 
ESV says breathed out by God, which I like, but I really like the NIV. All of Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Which Paul reminds Timothy, and, 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 and by extension reminds us, hey, don't skip the greetings. Don't, don't flip past the genealogies. Don't blow off those long lists of names. There's insight, there's blessing. In fact, there's often treasure waiting there. The thing about treasure is sometimes we've got to dig for it. It doesn't always jump off the page at us. But Solomon tells us, Wednesday night people, you know this, Solomon tells us in Proverbs 25.2, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, it's the glory of kings to search it out. And who are we in Jesus' eyes? Kings and priests, Revelation 1, verse 6. So it's our glory to dig deep for the treasure that's waiting in Scripture. Sometimes I wonder if that's part of how we spend eternity. Because the Bible is eternal. Just as God is eternal, just as you and I are eternal, I wonder if part of how we spend eternity is digging deeper and deeper in Scripture, uncovering subtlety and nuance and facets and dimensions. I think we could spend eternity and we would still be discovering new things. And we get to do that this morning. We get to dig in and see what God has for us. So let's start Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you might receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Sancria, it's one of two ports serving Corinth. It's marked there in the big red dot. So the church there is probably a daughter church, a church plant, a, a satellite church of the church in Corinth. Now, the fact that Paul is introducing her the way that he is, commending her, recommending her, essentially, likely means she's the one carrying the letter. It could even mean that she was the one who would read the letter because not everyone in the church was able to read and write. Regardless, she's clearly a faithful servant, someone Paul holds in high regard, and he's encouraging the church in Rome to do the same. Hey, this is Phoebe. She's awesome. Treat her that way. Verse 3, he continues, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. And these are returning characters. Paul first meets Priscilla and Aquila back in Acts 18. When he shows up in Corinth for the first time, he's in kind of rough shape. We... There's a hint of that in Acts 18. Paul comes out and says it in 1 Corinthians 2. Because he goes to Corinth after Athens. Athens was some rough ministry, right? The Mars Hill sermon. He leaves feeling a little beat up, arrives in Corinth, kind of in need of encouragement. He finds it in, in Aquila, who's a tent maker like Paul, so they've got that in common, and his wife Priscilla. Together they've recently arrived from Rome, because Emperor Claudius had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, and, and we've talked about this. End of Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila go with Paul to Ephesus. And when they get there, Paul moves on, they stay. In Acts 19, we read about their ministry there to a guy named Apollos. So they're still in Ephesus when Paul writes 1 Corinthians because he sends the Corinthians greetings from them. Hey, remember Priscilla and Aquila, when I was there, they were there, and we were all there together. Hey, they say hi. 
and the church that's meeting in their home, they say hi. And now, apparently at some point, they make their way back to Rome, and they have a home church there as well. So they've got a home church in Rome, before that a home church in Ephesus, before that a home church in Corinth. These are super servants. These guys are in it to win it. Verse 5, greet my beloved Apennatus, who is first fruits of Achaia, southern Greece to you and me, to Christ. Epinatus means praiseworthy. Some speculate, was that a name or was that a nickname? He's the first in the region to come to Christ, or possibly, because this is a Latin-sounding name, maybe he's the first Gentile in the region to come to Christ. The fact that Paul calls him beloved is interesting. It could point at a deep relationship that they cultivated somewhere along the way, or they could have a special relationship as Paul's first Gentile convert, as the first person, the first Gentile person that he led to Jesus in that region. And that could be why he was special to Paul. Imagine Paul, he really wanted ministry to the Jews, right? He really wanted to be the one to unpack Old Testament scripture and expound it and point to Jesus in it to his, his fellow Jews. And God says, no, you're the, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. Can, can you imagine Paul showing up wondering, doubting? Am I sure? Is, is this right? And, and, then, and then God actually moves and somebody, a Gentile, comes to Christ and Paul says, oh, okay, this is working. This is, this is, this is, really, this is happening. This is good. I've got a friend here at Calvary who, who, who is a friend in every sense of the word. We've been friends since I've been here. But, but there's a depth, there's a, a special aspect to our relationship that really transcends the, the time that we've spent together because of how God used him the very first Sunday I stood in this room to confirm my ministry here, to confirm God's call of my, on my life to come here. So, so it, it, it's possible that it's special in that regard. Greet Mary, verse 6, who labored much for us. Mary, a diminutive of Miriam, almost certainly Jewish, and the next two people named are Jewish. Greet Andronicus and Unia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who were of note among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. Countrymen is an unfortunate translation because Unia is a woman. You can tell because Latin, it's, it's the, the A at the end tells us that it's feminine. If, if Unia were a guy, she'd be Unius. But for a long time, the, the artifacts and history and transcriptionists, it should be my, my kinsmen is, is the idea there, my fellow Jews, my fellow prisoners. We don't know where they were jailed together. Obviously, this is before either of Paul's imprisonments in Rome, but Paul was in jail a lot, right? Philippi and a bunch of other places. We don't know where exactly they were behind bars together. But we know that their ministry probably began in Jerusalem. Why? Because they were believers before Paul and because they were known to the other apostles who were mostly hanging out in Jerusalem before Paul went into ministry. Greet Amplius, verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. Really all that we know for sure about him is that his name is Amplius and Paul loves him. Although it is a name that shows up frequently in the imperial line, in the family of the Caesars, and there are graves of people with that name, with decoration and artistry suggesting noble lineage in the catacombs of Domitia. Domitia is the oldest 
uh, Christian graves in Rome, some of the oldest Christian graves in the world. So that might be something that might be nothing. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Urbanus, you can guess, means city dweller. Lots of people, especially lots of slaves running around Rome with that name. Stachys is an uncommon name. One of the few places that shows up in secular literature is, again, associated with Caesar's household. So this could be someone in some way attached to Nero. We don't know for sure. Verse 10, greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Apelles is a common name, but approved means more than it, it seems to at first glance. A better translation would be tested and tried. So that leaves us to wonder, does Paul actually know him or does he just know his reputation? Does his reputation precede him? I was trading messages with my friend Ray Dash this week. You've met Ray, some of you. He's taught here, um, pastor of the Calvary Chapel in Newark, New Jersey. They're in the hood. And there have been articles about Ray written in, in Calvary Magazine and also in lots of other publications because he had to broker a truce, almost like an unprecedented thing, between the Bloods and the Crips to get his church neutral territory. There's actually a formal truce saying, okay, the church in the area around it is demilitarized zone. But the thing is, 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 is Ray goes to conferences and, oh, I've heard about you. I've heard about your ministry and the gangs in Newark. And, the, and, and he's like, I, I don't want you to hear about me. I want you to hear about Jesus. But his reputation goes before him. It could be that kind of thing here. Still verse 10, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Good reason to believe this is Aristobulus Minor. Who is that, Patrick? He's one of the grandsons of Herod the Great. And... He, that, that, that's really all there is to say about him, other than he died in the mid-40s. So his name, his family, his faith continued, which, which is the greatest legacy anyone could ask for. I have no greater joy than to know my children walk in truth. Verse 11, greet Herodian, my countrymen, which makes him another Jewish individual. The fact that his name is derived from Herod is interesting because that suggests one of two possibilities. Either he's a member of Herod's family, which is unlikely because he's Jewish, although not impossible, he could have been adopted, or he's a slave in Herod's household, which is probably more plausible. Still, verse 11, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Okay, this one we're less sure of, but the speculation is this could be, might be, possibly, maybe, Tiberius Claudius Narcissus, who was a decently well-known figure in his day. He was freed by Tiberius. He was influential when Claudius was emperor, and then Nero killed him. When he was executed, here's the thing, when he was executed, any slaves that he owned would become automatically property of the empire. They'd sort of be, be seized, be confiscated by the government, but they would still be referred to by their household name collectively. So Paul's language, those are of who are of the household of Narcissus, would fit if this is right, which it may or may not be. Verse 12 Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. So these are also women. That A at the end cues us to that. And they're likely sisters, because it was popular in Paul's day to give children names from the same Greek root. So Tryphena, Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, still verse 12, who labored much in the Lord. Another woman whose ministry Paul respects. Her name suggests it doesn't demand, but maybe she could be of Persian ancestry. 
Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. We're going to slow down because this one is interesting. And we've talked about it before. We talked about it two years ago, I think, on Resurrection Sunday. Rufus is a super common name in Paul's day. means red. He was a ginger. So this, this could be anybody. But at the end of Mark's gospel, we come across something provocative. Mark 15. The gospel according to Mark that we know is really written by Peter. In Peter's account of the events leading up to the crucifixion, the things that happened immediately prior to it, we read that on the way to Calvary, they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, this could be a coincidence because, like I said, super common name. Except the Gospel of Paul, just like this letter, was written to the Romans. The Romans were, were the targeted audience of Mark's Gospel. So the fact that it says the father of Alexander and Rufus, like that's supposed to mean something. You know, Simon, you know, Alex and Rufus's dad. I think makes it possible that it's the same guy. I think it's possible Simon came to Christ after the crucifixion, after carrying the cross to the crucifixion, had a son named Rufus, either, either already had a son or subsequently, who came to Christ, who helped start or who helped serve in the church in Rome. Is it speculation? You bet. But, but, but let's, let's go down this road. Let's, let's crawl further out on a really skinny branch. Assuming all of that is true, which it may or may not be, what do we do with his mother and mine? Because there's no world where Paul and Rufus are biological brothers. There's no world where they're even adopted brothers. And Paul's never been to Rome. How does he know Rufus's mom? How does he know her well enough to call her mom? Now, this is way out there. But, you know, Wednesday night people know that that's where I love to, love to spend my time. Acts 13, after Barnabas and goes and gets Saul, that was Paul's original name from Tarsus, ministry in Antioch is cooking, Barnabas says, you know who would be perfect for this? That guy Saul. We dropped him off in Tarsus 10 years ago. I wonder if he's still there. He was there. And we read in Acts 13, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas. Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Simeon, who was called Niger. This is a stretch. This is, I wonder if. But back in Mark 15, Simon, Simeon, same thing, was introduced as being from Cyrene. Cyrene is northern Africa. And Niger is Latin for dark or black. Is it possible the same Simon who carried the cross of Christ as an older man is an elder in the church of Antioch and his wife was a mom figure to Paul as he was starting that season of his ministry? Kind of like Anna's second mom or Calvary mom or Kansas mom to, to some of the young people in the fellowship. Maybe. Definite possibility of a firm maybe. <laughs> and that's all we can say. Verse 14, we'll keep going. Greet Asyncritus, uh, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. So this is a family or a family church, church family, house church. Verse 15, greet Philologus and Yulia, 
Nereus and his sister, Olympus and all the saints who are with them, same idea, family or house church. Probably maybe more likely a house church because of that phrase, the saints that are with them, but either way. Verse 16, greet another with a, a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. And so do, skip down, so do Paul's co-laborers in Corinth as he's writing this. Specifically, verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. Timothy, we know. Lucius, is this possible? That's the same dude that we just read about in Acts 13, verse 1. One of the elders in Paul's days in Antioch with Paul were Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene. Maybe. Jason, a lot of people speculate this could be the same Jason who was hosting Paul and his missions team in Thessalonica, who, who got dragged down on the street because they were trying to find Paul and, and beat him up and run him out of town from Acts 17. Not for sure, but a lot of people think so. So Sopater, we're confident we know who this guy is because he shows up in Acts 20, verse 4, the same part of Acts where Paul is writing this letter. So the side-by-side -side makes it likely that they're the same person. Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Wait, I thought Paul wrote this. Is this a pen name for Paul? No, he's Paul's scribe, his amanuensis, his transcriptionist. And, you know, Paul says, hey, why don't, why don't you throw a line in there? Say, say hi to everyone. Gaius, verse 23, my host and host of the whole church greets you. So this is where Paul is staying. It's also where the house church in Corinth meets. Different guy than Acts 20 because Paul calls him that guy, Gaius of Derby, almost you know, to set him apart. But this could be the same Gaius as 1 Corinthians 1.14, one of the people, one of the only people that Paul says, yeah, I baptized just a couple dudes in Corinth. Gaius is one of them, and this could be the same Gaius. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. This, this one we find some solid ground. This one is, is, is not a maybe because archaeologists found a paving stone in a road when they were excavating Corinth. They found this in 1929 that has an inscription on it thanking Erastus for the donation that paid for the road and, and acknowledging that he is the director of, of city works. So, so we have archaeological evidence. Hey, Erastus was a real person, and we know who he was. Erastus, the treasurer, greets you, and Cordus, a brother, and that's really all we know about Cordus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Fun facts, Patrick. Interesting tidbits, some fun theories, some provocative speculation. I think I missed the part where we found buried treasure. I'm not sure I saw... Riches. I hear you. I think it's helpful to be reminded that the people Paul talks about are people, real people, some of whom we can identify through extra biblical sources. They're not myths or legends. Real people living real lives, doing real things for our real Lord. I also think it's helpful and, and, and maybe even powerful to see the names, to see the people that we meet in one letter show up in another letter. And the people that we associate with ministry in one place, hey, they show up and they're doing ministry in a different place. Priscilla and Aquila, can, conspicuously among them, but, but others. It's a reminder, sometimes God calls people to places and then calls them to other places. God plants, he transplants. Sometimes he replants in that first place. There's, there's seasons of ministry. But for me, the riches, 
the treasure of the chapter, the things that are really worth grabbing hold of and hanging on to, is not in, in any one name or any one story. It's, it's the sum of all of them. It's all of it taken together. Because if we take the time to read the chapter the way that we just did, not as, as big blocks of names that we're not sure how to pronounce, but as, as, as a roster of believers, a collection of servants of the true and living God, the thing that jumps off the page is the incredible diversity of this group in every sense of the word. Diversity of class. There are slaves and free and rich and poor, members of the elite, members of Nero's household. There's diversity of culture. There are Jews and Gentiles. Among Jews, there are Jews from Jerusalem. There are Jews who are Hellenists, who had adopted Greek culture. Gentiles from all over, Asia, Europe, Africa. Diversity of fellowship, fellowship in the sense of church. There's five, at least, five different home churches called out. Diversity of gender. Yes, there are only two, but we have both. Out of, I think it's 28 names, if I counted right? 28 names in, in the first part. Ten of them are women. That's more than a third. That's extraordinary for Paul's context. That's almost unbelievable for somebody living in Paul's place and in Paul's time. And, and it's even more extraordinary the substantive role that many of them played in ministry. But we see the same thing for Jesus. Jesus has a high view of women, and Paul seems to have inherited that or adopted that as well. And talking about role, think about the diversity of relationship we see in the chapter. Sister, helper, fellow worker, church, household, beloved, countryman, fellow prisoner, approved, laborer, chosen, mother, brother, scribe, host. The whole chapter just shouts Galatians 3.28, right? The whole chapter is, is, is like an exposition. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul's proving that with the people that he's greeting. And that's convicting for me. As we wrap up our chapter, as we wrap up the book, this incredible diversity has me asking some questions. This is just... Me talking to me, but it might be provocative for some of you. Because, because just sinking deep into this chapter this week has me asking, who am I friends with? And do my friendships cross the lines and boundaries that Paul's relationships clearly do? Am I making assumptions about who I can or should be friends with? Who I do or don't have something in common with? They're into sports. I don't like sports. We can't be friends. They have kids. I'm scared of kids. <laughs> they spend all their time outside. I'm allergic to the sun. You might have heard. I'm Gen Z. They're a boomer. Wait, no, strike that. Reverse it. <laughs> They're retired. I still work. We, we invent barriers for ourselves, but look again at the passage and notice how Paul introduces almost every person that he greets. Phoebe, verse 2, receive her in the Lord. Priscilla and Achilla, verse 3, my fellow workers in Christ. Epinatus, verse 5, first fruits to Christ. And Donicus and Unia, verse 7, in Christ before me. Amplius, verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. Urbanus, our fellow worker, verse 9, in Christ. Apelles, verse 10, approved in Christ. The household of Narcissus, verse 11, in the Lord. 
Tryphena and Tryphosa, verse 12, who have labored in the Lord. Persis labored much in the Lord. Rufus, verse 13, chosen in the Lord. Brethren, verse 14, in Christ. Sisters, verse 15, saints and churches, verse 16, of Christ. Do you see a theme? <laughs> we, I, I say often, because it's true, relationship relationship between people among people begins with being able to say hey you and i have something in common you and i are alike in some way friendship c.s lewis said friendship starts with one person saying to another person you too i thought it was just me relationship begins with saying hey we have something in common what do all of these 28 people have in common yeah 28 not counting those in the household, 28 not counting those at the bottom who are with Paul, but they all have Jesus in common. Jesus has made us family. We know that. We not smile and nod and say, yeah, that's true. But we all have family we keep, you know, at arm's length. We've got family we keep our distance from. We love, you know, from far away, we don't really talk to. But Paul's reminding us that God has not only made us a family, he calls us to be friends. Jesus, friend of sinners, Jesus, friend of sinners, should make us friends of each other. And friends are people we do talk to, do spend time with, do engage with, do make part of our lives. Question, are we letting Jesus do that? Or are we letting worldly identity that we cling to prevent the godly unity that we're called to. Action step, if you're so inclined. This, this is just me. I'm just sort of barfing my devotional life on you here this morning. But, but my action step for me, you can take it or leave it, is to get to know two uncommon people this week, people that I don't have anything obvious in common with. Try to connect with them, strike up a conversation with them. Something, someone that, I, that I, I don't think has anything in common with me other than Jesus, because I think we just saw that Jesus is enough. I said a few questions. That's one. I got two more. Who am I friends with was one. Who am I praying for is two. Paul talks about prayer a lot in his letters. He talks about it in the beginning of this letter. Romans 1.8 he says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. And that's typical of many of his letters, right? That's a lot of people. If he's making mention always in his prayers to all of the different groups and all of the different churches that he's writing, that's a lot of people. Question, how diligent am I to make mention of, my, of people who might be out of sight, who might be par, far away in my prayers the way that Paul clearly did. Because, come on, he just rattles off names, right? He just throws out two dozen people, more than two dozen people, at a church he's never been to. That's convicting. Paul's praying for people whose, maybe their paths cross for a few days, a few weeks, how many, I, I, I got to ask myself, how many people am I praying for at the church that I served at for more than 10 years? Because I'm here now. Somebody else can pray for them. They can pray for themselves. That wasn't, that wasn't Paul's mindset. I've been on six or seven church boards. Am I praying for all of those churches? We did ministry with, I think, 12 churches last week, week before last at youth camp. Am I praying for them? Paul would be. 
My flesh says, Patrick, that's a really long list of people. Yeah, I, Paul's list has got to be longer, right? Yeah, but Patrick, you're busier than you've ever been. Busier than Paul. <laughs> Action step. This is me for me, and, and you do you. But, but I read this and I say, I've got to update my written prayer list. I have six or seven in different places. I need to consolidate them. I need to update them. I need to keep them where I can find them, and I need to use them. And we need to update our prayer list for the church as well. We've got, we've got new people in the fellowship since we last said, hey, everyone in the church is going to be prayed for every day by a pastor or elder. I need to make sure that that list is still robust. Who am I friends with? Who am I praying with? Third and final, and maybe the most convicting for me, who am I comparing myself to? Crazy diverse array of people in Romans 16, diverse in all the ways that we've mentioned, class, culture, gender, relationship. Add another one, diverse in reputation. Not in the sense of good or bad, but well-known versus obscure, famous versus anonymous. And I don't think that the spectrum that we see, you know, the spectrum from people that everybody knows to people that nobody knows, I don't think that's just a function of it was 2,000 years ago and the details were lost over time. I, th I think in Paul's day, it was the same thing. Some of those names were probably super well-known and some of them almost completely unknown. I think that if, if, if Phoebe's in Rome reading this letter, there were people saying, yeah, know him, know him, yeah, yeah, oh, I haven't thought of him. Who? <laughs> I think there were some people that Paul knew that were in the church that people didn't know were in the church. I mean, we've had that happen, right? If you habitually go to second service, there are first service people that you've probably never met. But the funny thing is, all of these people, well-known and relatively unknown, they seem to be on equal footing in Paul's eyes. And I think the reason was each of them was obedient to what God uniquely, specifically called them to do. That, that wars with our minds a little bit. We live in a capitalist society, mostly. Individuals and businesses compete in the marketplace, right? Researchers and academics compete, uh, compete in the marketplace of ideas. And it works, as well as anything does. And it works because it's based on an accurate understanding of humanity. Humanity is sinful, which makes humanity self-centered which means each individual can be dependably relied upon to pursue his or her own self-interest. It's human nature. It's why our society works as well as it does. The challenge for you and I who are in Christ Jesus is remembering to hit override at the right time, to set aside our human nature and choose to dwell in our divine nature, to choose to be transformed, the way Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, choosing to walk in the Spirit, all different ways of saying the same thing, right? Setting aside self and prioritizing God and others. Which means setting aside competition with others and laying hold of how God would have us serve others. Each of us, uniquely, specifically, as individuals, as churches. It means not comparing ourselves to others. That's hard for me. All three of these are challenging. This one more than the others. Who am I comparing myself to? That's hard because 
three-sport athlete in high school, picked up a fourth one in college. From childhood, I spent hours a day training and being trained to fight and compete and win, to dominate the guy across from me, to, to defeat the team playing against me. Same thing when I ran a business. How do I beat out the other guys for the next customer? How do I wrestle away market share? How do I edge out my rivals? That's how I was programmed. That's my sin nature, and that's everything that the world reinforced. Except now, who's my competition in the body of Christ? It's just me. It's, it's, it's the me that I am competing with the me that Jesus has called me to be. It's the me that I am today competing with the Jesus that Je Jesus is sanctifying me and enabling me to become. I'm just competing with me. I struggle to remember that. A couple weeks ago at youth camp, a dozen churches, I think, six of us sharing the teaching. And I can't help it. I'm sitting there. I'm used to teaching. So if somebody else is teaching, I'm listening, but I'm also comparing. Oh, can I be as smart as this guy? Can I be as funny as that guy? No, no, I can't. <laughs> can I be as deep as this one? Am I as relatable as that one? And then I, I stopped off at Calvary Ark City to fill in for Pastor Ryan last week. Excellent teacher, really different cat than me. And, 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 and the question just sort of pops up unbidden, should I be more like him? He, I, I walk from about here to about here, because that's where Ann tells me that the camera shot is. So for the, out of an abundance of love for the people at home. He's, he's, he's over here. They got like four different cameras, and they're clicking in and out. Because he's all over the stage. He's got a handheld mic, and he's, you know, he's, I, sorry, Hector. <laughs> oh, now I did it. I should be more like Hector and just, you know, leave the mic in its stand. <laughs> He's, he's also a super transparent, emotional guy. He teaches raw. And, and, I, and I ask myself, man, should I be like, more like Ryan? And, and they're the wrong questions. Should I teach like Ryan or should I teach like me? It's the wrong question. And I know it's the wrong question, but it, it's, it's take every thought captive territory, right? It's temptation. And we got to expect temptation of every kind from every direction because that's the world we live in and it's the body that our soul inhabits. Temptation is going to happen. Are you as good as that guy? Are you, should you be more like that guy? The, thought, the thought's going to arise. We're programmed for it from within and without. What we got to do is take that thought captive and say, no, it's not about me versus Ryan, me versus anyone else. It's me versus me. Who am I compared to who God has called me to be? Who am I in the ministry that he's placed me, with the gifts that he's given me? You know, and, and, and don't, don't miss, I talked about it being an American thing and a sports thing. Don't miss the other part. It's a sin thing. Comparing ourselves compulsively to one another, comparing our ministries to one another, that's a sin thing. Springs, springs forth from our sin nature. Let me prove it. First humans born with a sin nature were... Cain and Abel, what's at the heart of what God tells us about them? Comparison. My sacrifice is better than your sacrifice. And, 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 if, and take that idea, it runs all through Scripture. Jacob and Esau, my inheritance, your inheritance. The children of Israel, the whole time we see them, is this place better than where we were or not as good as where we were? 
They eat garlic there. <laughs> they, get, they, get to the, they get to the border. Is where we are good or is in the land good? Because there's giants there. David. David, his whole life is one of comparison. He's, when we first meet him, he's being compared to his big brothers. Then he's compared to Saul. Then he's compared to Goliath. Then he's compared to Absalom. Israel returning to the land after the exile. 70 years in Babylon. They're finally back in the land. They're rebuilding the temple. What's the first response the people have? It's not as good as the old one. <laughs> the apostles. What's the recurring debate among the apostles? Who's the greatest? I mean, I'm just cherry-picking examples, but it runs all the way through. But what does Jesus tell us about comparison? This is where we're going to end up this morning. What did Jesus suggest should be true for us as he replaces the heart of stone that we're born with with the heart of flesh he gives us? John 21. After This is, this is post-resurrection. Jesus and Peter meet up. They have a conversation. Jesus restores Peter to ministry. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And at the, at the tail end of that discussion, Jesus says, oh yeah, and by the way, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be taken where you don't want to go with your arms outstretched wide. Translation, Peter, you're going to be crucified just like me. Peter looks at John and looks at Jesus and looks at John and looks at Jesus and says, what about him? Jesus says, what about him? I'll take care of him. Pastor Dave Fitzgerald, when he was here, if you remember last year, he said, be careful how you read the tone here. Because, you know, we, we, we tend to think that Peter is being Peter and saying, I've got to die? Okay, tell me he has to die. It can't just be me. If I'm going to die, John's going to die. It's just as possible that Peter is saying, oh man, Jesus, that's heavy. Is John going to be okay? Are you, but, but see, either way, Peter is saying, hey, what about John? What, tell me about John's ministry compared to my ministry. And Jesus says, I'll take care of him. I'll lead him. I'll guide him. I'll gift him. I'll send him. I'll provide for him. When he dies, however he dies, I'll bring him home to spend eternity with me. I got, I got John covered. Peter, what you need to focus on is following me. Because as you follow me, I'm going to gift you. And I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to send you. You, Peter, follow me. Blinders on. Let, let me and John, we'll do our thing. You and I, let's do our thing. And, that, and Jesus says that to all of us, to each of us. He says, follow me. I've prepared ministry for you. That's for you. Someone else could do it, but probably not as well, because I've gifted you for it. I've called you to it. I'll meet you in it. I'll bless you through it. When you're done, I'll reward you for it. And it has nothing at all whatsoever to do with what anyone else is doing. Some might minister to many. Some might minister to just one. There are people whose life's work in ministry is a solid, single solitary individual. Some might serve in the spotlight, others in the shadows. Some do lots of different things in lots of different places. One does one single thing at a time. Some do things that are familiar and well-known and recognizable. Others do things that are singular and weird. But they all have one thing in common. When we stand before the Bema seat, the report card Jesus gives us will not be graded on a curve. It will not be in reference to anybody else, but only in reference to our own faithfulness. Did we do what God asked us to do as well as we could in the grace that he supplies for the glory of his name? 
Comparison's a trap. Comparison's a trap. And, and, and not just ministry at the church, my ministry to my family, my ministry in, in other relationships, my stewardship of my money, my time. Oh, how Satan wants me to look to the left or the right. I'm doing better than they are. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm horrible compared to them. And, and you know, look, if, if comparison prompts me to ask, am I being as obedient as someone else is, that, that could be helpful. Paul says, hey, outdo each other in love. That's a competition of sorts. Hey, am I loving the way that God has called me to love? Am I, am I being as obedient as, as, as the examples that God has, has put in my life? Okay, I, that's valid. Anything else is a trap. Because it either leads to pride or it leads to envy. And either one is good. If I do my ministry comparing to other people in reference to other people, one of two things is going to happen. Either I fail, which is likely, because I'm not doing God's work God's way and God's strength. I'm doing my work my way and my strength. And that outcome is almost preordained. Or, and this is worse, the other possibility is I succeed in this life. And then stand before the bema seat and watch it burn because it's just a big heap and mess of wood, hay, and stubble. Not from the Lord, not for the Lord, not through the Lord. And even if it looked like success in man's eyes, it wasn't God's vision, it wasn't his promise, it wasn't his power. It was my insecurity or my popularity or my liberty or my something that wasn't God's plan for me. Oh, the only person I need to compete with is me. The only church, family, the only church we need to compete with is us. Can we look at other churches and, and say, hey, that's something to pray about. That's something to consider. That's something I hadn't thought of. Sure, safety in a multitude of counselors. But at the end of the day, we need to be the best version of who God has called us to be. Are we letting him lead us? Are we letting him strip away pride and covetousness and ambition so there's nothing left but to serve him? Action step, third and final. If you're so inclined, ask that question. Seek the Lord. Am I following him? Lord, am I following you the way that you're leading me today? Because sometimes we hang on to yesterday. Sometimes we reach ahead to what we think the Lord might have tomorrow. No, Lord, am I, am I following you today? And when we hear from him, obey him. And when we get stuck, it's, it's, it's not looking to the left or the right when we're not sure. It's not looking at him or, or at her or at them. It's asking him. Which is everything that he says in the closing verses. As Hector and I have come back up. Now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God who alone is wise, to God who alone knows the way that we should go, to God who will be faithful to lead and guide and provide, be glory through Christ Jesus forever. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have not left us here 
clueless. You have not left us here helpless. You have not left us here hopeless. You have a plan for each of us. And with that plan, you promise power. And as we walk in your ways, you promise peace and joy. Father, we thank you for that that assurance. And we thank you for grace. Because we're going to get it wrong. We're going to stumble and fall. We're going to get wrapped up in comparison. The world begs us to. Our own sin nature invites us to. We're going to step in that hole again and again. Thank you, Lord, that every time we do, your grace is sufficient to meet us, to clean us up, and to set us back on the path. Lord, thank you for the grace in our lives as we follow you.